All right. Uh, if you guys would grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3. And I'm going to grab my Bible as well. We're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning, verses only verses 29 to 30. John chapter 3, 29 to 30. All right, Henry Louis Mencken. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Yes? Am I saying his last name right? Mencken. All right. Henry Louis Mencken uh, was born in 1880. Uh, he lived into the 50s, 1950s. He was influential in uh, journalism. He was a critic of American literature. Um, he also uh, had a sarcastic humor that seemed to creep into uh, his work and everything he did. So um, it was normal for him to, to criticize, uh, to be sarcastic, really about everything, about American culture, American life. That's the extent of what I know about him, and for fear that Peter will rebuke me later, I will say no more. This is why I bring him up, though. He took a famous shot at the Puritans. He took a famous shot, what's kind of become famous, at least in our small world. Um, he took a famous shot at Puritanism. Um, a shot at their way of life and kind of their overall attitude and uh, culture. Now, all you need to know about the Puritans, we're talking about Christians in the 1500s, 1600s who were marked by and, and have forever been marked by spiritual fervor, okay, spiritual seriousness. They were deadly serious about reforming the church. Um, uh, and, and even when you read them, even when you read the Puritans sometimes, you might read a Puritan and go, wow, this is incredible. And you might read another Puritan and say, do you ever smile? Okay, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the Puritan thing. Um, this is what Menken said about them that has kind of become a famous shot. He's describing Puritans and Puritanism. And this is what he wrote. Puritanism, the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. That was what he said. That's what Puritanism is. It's the fear that someone somewhere might be smiling and happy about something. All right. Whether he was right or wrong, I think he was right and wrong. Um, whatever his motives would, uh, were, um, you and I both know that sometimes Christians, sometimes you and I, we, uh, give the impression that to be a Christian means to be unhappy to kind of be sad, uh, to even be morbid. And sometimes people looking from the outside in may go, man, that's what Christians are. They're just afraid that someone might be happy, you know? And then for some reason, every Sunday they gather for what kind of feels like a boring funeral, you know? That could be someone's uh, critique of us or even Redeemer. Maybe this is in even our theology, that it's not an accident, maybe even in our beliefs, for whatever reason, we think that it's good theology to think that, that joy in life and happiness in life is actually a low priority in the Bible, that it's a low priority um, for God, um, maybe even wrong. Not, not just a low priority, but even joy is in some sense wrong, you know? Man, I was reading my Bible this week, and I just had so much joy. Is something wrong? 
Is something wrong with me, you know, that I, I feel so happy about reading my Bible and spending time in prayer? What's wrong, you know? Um, it, it feels like it's more holy if I do it when I don't want to, you know? I didn't want to read my Bible and I did it. That's like the apex of Christianity, you know? Um, our text this morning, John chapter 3, our text this morning is going to prove Martin Lloyd-Jones right. Martin Lloyd-Jones being a famous preacher in kind of our corner of the church world. And this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said and wrote, and our text is going to prove true. He said this, nothing, nothing is more important than that we should be delivered from a condition which gives other people the impression that to be a Christian means to be unhappy, to be sad, to be morbid, and that the Christian is one who scorns delights and lives laborious days. He said nothing is more important than that you and I are delivered from a condition where people looking from the outside in say Christianity, the fear that someone might be happy. Nothing is more important than that we be delivered, that I think our text is going to deliver us and help us be delivered and prove him right this morning. So if you would, let's stand to hear God's word this morning in these two short verses from uh, John the Baptist. And we may not, we may not. Have Here we go. John chapter 3, 29 to 30. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Father, we pray that you would send your word out. It wouldn't return void. It would do what you purpose it to do. And I pray that it would deliver us from joylessness. It would deliver us from a severe lack of joy. And that we would all walk out with a bit more joy than when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, why this text? Why this text? We're going, Joy to the World is our series focusing particularly on Christ's birth. Why John the Baptist this morning? Well, John the Baptist's story is wrapped up in Jesus' own birth. You can see that um, especially in the book of Luke. Um, and today, our text, John the Baptist, uh, makes me ask, hopefully makes you ask, John the Baptist, what are you so happy about? We just read it where he says, I rejoice greatly, my joy is complete. And so what I'm asking principally this morning, what I want us to answer is, John, what are you so happy about? Now, before we answer that, we have to answer a few other questions, and we're going to go back in the book of John to, to get to that ultimate answer. But we've got to answer a couple other questions. Now, here's what you have to know. In the context of this text, John the Baptist is defending himself. Uh, he's being compared to Jesus in this moment, um, and he's defending himself, and he's defending why he's okay with Jesus being a much bigger deal than him. That's what he's, he's defending, and this is what he says, as we just read in verse 29, if you look at it. He starts defending himself, and he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now, this is kind of odd language, okay? Who is the bridegroom? Now, we can give the Sunday school answer, and it's the correct answer. Who is the bridegroom? Jesus. Okay, of course it's Jesus. He's talking about 
Jesus, but who is Jesus really? Who is Jesus really? Who Jesus really is, is a um, major core question for the gospel of John. John set out to write this gospel, and that was a core driving question. Who is Jesus really? And so turn in your Bible, if you have your Bible or your phone, whatever, go to John chapter 1. We're going to look at just two key texts from, the, from John chapter 1, ultimately driving to the question of John the Baptist, what are you so happy about? In John chapter 1, rather than starting with Jesus' birth, like Matthew does, like Luke does, John goes cosmic and epic, getting at the heart of who Jesus is. Look at, look at how the gospel of John begins in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We're going to stop there. Take this key text to answer who is Jesus really? Who really is the bridegroom? Um, He says, in the beginning was the Word. This would take any reader familiar with the Bible straight to Genesis. Um, in the beginning. We're going back. This is epic. This is cosmic. This is huge. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There's this distinction being made here between the Word and God, as the Son is distinct from the Father in persons. But then he goes on, and he said, and the Word was God. So he makes a distinction, the word, um, the word was with God, distinction, and the word was God, suddenly no distinction. A distinction and no distinction. Like the Son is distinct from the Father in persons, and like the Son and the Father are one God. And then he goes on in verse 2 and says, um, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him. So in case we have any idea that this word was maybe just in the beginning and somehow created and then elevated to the status of God somehow, no, no, no. He was before creation. All things were created through him. So who is the bridegroom really? Who is Jesus really? He is the eternal son of God in the flesh. He is the creator, the one through whom all things were made. The book, we're stopping there for this key text, but John in chapter 1 goes on really this epic, unrelenting rant about who, who Jesus is. He makes around 18 weighty claims about who Jesus is. He says in chapter 1, he's the only son from the Father, he's the Son of God, he's the Lord, he's the King of Israel, he's the Son of Man, he's at the Father's side, he has made the Father known, the world was made through him, in him is life, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit, he's the Messiah, the Christ. John just goes on and on and on and say, Yes, when you look at Jesus, he's a man, and he looks ordinary in his birth. In one sense, if you didn't know the details, looked ordinary, but I'm telling you, he's so much more than you might realize. He is God in the flesh. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, equal with the Father, the one, the one that the Old Testament is all about and pointing to. And he's now come, 
and he's now here in the flesh. Now, this is what you can't miss. As John is focusing on God, the Son of God, taking on flesh and coming to the world, he describes the world that he came to, and we can't miss this. He describes what the world is like. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What's the world like that the Word came to? What's the world like that the Son of God came to? It's a world in which things have gone dark. But what is this darkness really? John uses a lot of vague terms on purpose. But so, so what is it really like? What, what does it mean that the world is dark? In chapters 1 and 3, this is how John, the, the author of the gospel, elaborates on what it means that the world is dark. For the world to be dark means that people do not know Jesus, they do not receive Jesus, they are not worthy of the Son of God, they need a new birth, they need new life. The world is dead. That's that is this text's understanding of the world, which, by the way, draws out more meaning when you consider one of the most famous verses in the Bible, for God so loved the world. Because in this book, the world is a dark, dark, evil place. This is what we call sin. The world has gone dark. The world has fallen in sin. We, we are born, you and I included, with a corrupt aversion to God to trusting God, to loving God, to worshiping God, to receiving him. The problem is not merely that we, we can't figure Jesus out. The problem is, is even when we can figure Jesus out, we have it all explained in front of us, we don't want him. We don't receive him. We don't trust him. That's the world that the word, the eternal son of God, came to. So, the bridegroom comes to a world of darkness that doesn't want him, doesn't love him, doesn't trust him. But why does he come? Why? Why the first advent? Why does he take on flesh and come to this world? As we ask that question, we're getting closer to asking our ultimate question, which is, John the Baptist, what are you so happy about? Skip down, if you're looking in chapter 1, we're going to look at our second core text. Skip down to verse 16. Let's answer the question, why? Why did Jesus come? Verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received judgment for our corruption, condemnation for our aversion to him, Doom for our sin, rejection for our rejection of him. That's what we deserve to read right there. For from his fullness, we have all received exactly what we deserve. That's what we deserve to read. That's even when we know our sin, you know your sin. That's almost what we expect to read. That if you tell me God showed up, as I said, I think a couple weeks ago, I'm assuming, I'm expecting scorched earth judgment on this dark, sinful place. But we read something mesmerizing. Look at verse 16 again. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace happened 
grace upon grace was accomplished because Jesus didn't come to give the law. Jesus is not a new and improved Moses, is what this text says here. The reason Christianity or a church or your own walk with God can feel like a funeral is here explained. It's here explained. Perhaps it feels that way. It feels that way to me at times. We give that impression to the world that to be a Christian is to be sad and to be down is because Jesus to us is just a new, better, final lawgiver. Just improving on the incomplete work of Moses. This is what I mean. Moses gave the Ten Commandments, but Jesus gave the example we needed to follow them. I had the Ten Commandments, and I just needed an example to see of what it looked like, and then I can just, what would Jesus do my way into the kingdom, right? Or Moses gave the Ten Commandments, but Jesus shows how it all applies to the heart. That's what I needed, you know? I know not to kill anyone outwardly, but I just needed an example. I needed someone to show me and teach me that, no, it applies to the heart too. And so Jesus does that. He says, you haven't killed anyone outwardly. You just kill a lot of people in your heart, you know? Or Moses gave the Ten Commandments, but they were just kind of harsh and rigid, you know? Uh, Jesus came to kind of lighten things up a little bit, you know, to relax. Yeah, I know you're not perfect, but just try your best. Just do your best, you know. Of course, you can't follow all ten, but if you can pump out six, even seven, we're fine. We're good, right? Or Moses was all about rules, but Jesus came to make it all about just this relationship, right? Here's how Michael Horton, my uh, favorite living theologian, summarizes it. For many, the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus was a kinder, gentler Moses who softened the law into easier exhortations, such as loving God and neighbor from the heart. Hey, don't get all caught up in the rules. Just love God and just love your neighbor. Here's how John Calvin responds to that kind of idea. As if we could think of anything more difficult than to love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength. Hey, just love God perfectly. Just love God with everything in you. Oh, and by the way, love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Right? As if we could think of anything more difficult anything more impossible. We feel no joy or little joy, not because we don't go to Jesus, but because we go to Jesus as a new lawgiver. And life under the law feels like a funeral. It feels like a funeral. Moses gave the Ten Commandments. Jesus gave us his example. But you know what the problem is? A lot of times when I ask, what would Jesus do? I think the exact opposite is the perfect answer. Moses gave the Ten Commandments, and Jesus applies it all to the heart. You know what the problem is? In my heart, I keep killing people. Moses gave the Ten Commandments. They were harsh. Jesus kind of gives law light, but I can't even do that. I just just find that I don't love people. 
Moses was all about rules, but Jesus came to make it a relationship of love. But the problem is, I'm really bad at this relationship of love with God. I just find that I don't love him all that much. I find in my heart, I, I definitely don't love people all that much. Again and again, we go to Jesus as the new lawgiver, the new and improved Moses, and again and again, if we're honest, we don't measure up. And that is life under the law. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I quoted earlier, goes on to say, it's because we belong to Jesus that the devil will do his utmost to disturb and upset us. While he cannot rob us of our salvation, he can make us miserable. And he can, if we're foolish enough to listen to him, seriously limit our enjoyment of our salvation. Do you want to be miserable? Then just go to Jesus like he's just your new lawgiver. Like he just came to kind of do what Moses did and just give more rules and show an example and then cross his fingers and hope you might do well this time. You failed Moses, but maybe you won't fail this time. After all, you have his example before you. If you want to be miserable, think of Jesus that way, treat him that way, and go to him for that reason. Now, yes, Jesus preached the law of God, the good, holy, righteous law of God. Yes, Jesus upheld the law. But remember, the law only exposes that you're a sinner. It just exposes that you are a sinner. It doesn't take your sin away. And so Jesus, the new lawgiver, if that's how we see him and understand him, is just the Jesus who we go to, and he's just always exposing our sin, exposing our sin, exposing our sin, and then just leaving us there. No joy or lacking serious joy. Jesus came to do something much better. He came to do something much better. John the Baptist answers in chapter one why Jesus came. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Moses came to give the law, which ultimately exposed the problem, exposed our sin, and Jesus, the Lamb of God, came to say, I'm gonna take it all away, not just keep exposing it. The bridegroom Jesus came to be your lamb who died for lawbreakers, and then he rose to give you new life. Jesus is the eternal son of God in the flesh who is the lamb of God who takes away your sin that you might have eternal life in him. Not through your works, not by your performance, totally through faith in him. Through faith in him alone, based on his performance and his works and his upholding of God's law for you. That's grace upon grace. Now, we've already begun to answer it, but what is John the Baptist so happy about? Where's his joy from? Where's this complete joy coming from? Look again at, at chapter three. You can turn there. Look again at chapter three. Let's answer our question. What are you so happy about, John the Baptist? Verse 29, he says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John sees and he hears Jesus and he has joy. This is the first positive state of mind, human condition, emotional condition in the gospel of John. It's the first, joy. 
He sees Jesus and he has joy. If you remember in Luke, if you remember a couple weeks ago, Jeff and I have mentioned that in Luke, the same thing happens. The first positive state of mind, human condition in the gospel of Luke is what? Joy at Jesus. In Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew, it says that when the the Magi saw the star pointing them to Jesus, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. If you remember last week, Jeff said that John the Baptist, when he was in the womb, when Mary showed up with Jesus in the womb, he what? Leapt for joy. Again and again, one thing I've learned, y'all, in this series of Joy to the World, looking at the Gospels, looking how the Gospels start, look how they introduce Jesus. It's as if there's one thing that the Gospels want to make emphatically clear about receiving Jesus. And that is when you receive Jesus, when you believe in him, brace for the impact of joy. It is unmistakable in the Gospels that this world of darkness, when Jesus comes through faith in him, joy, joy. Life in Christ is life under unending grace upon grace. It's not life under the law, and it brings you the height of happiness. The heights of happiness. And it's a core aim, a core aim of God for you, is that you would be wildly happy in Jesus. It's a major priority for him. Let's get more specific. What is John the Baptist so happy about in the context of the beginning of this book? He is happy about that six times in this gospel, already into verse three, we're told that we have eternal life in Jesus. He's happy about that we have adoption in Jesus. Three times we're told that we have grace in Jesus, that in Jesus our sins are taken away, that we have salvation, that we receive the Holy Spirit, that we have life, not condemnation. That's what you get in Jesus. That's what you get in him. Now, you might be thinking, Colin, this is easy to say for John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist actually saw Jesus. When he says, I saw Jesus, he wasn't saying like, with the eyes of faith, I saw him. No, he saw him. He was there. He actually heard his voice. So easy for John the Baptist to say. He saw him, he heard his voice. Of course, he has joy. I've never seen him. 1 Peter 1 says this, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. There is a joy in the Holy Spirit that we have in believing in Jesus, though never hearing his voice and seeing him as John the Baptist did, there is this inexpressible joy that God works in us. And this is what I want us to make sure we notice before we close here, that joy does not come from focusing on joy. It would be an easy trap for us to fall into this morning or this series um, of joy to the world to think, if I just focus on joy, I'll get joy. You know, if I just meditate on joy, maybe it will come about. But that's not what we see in the Bible at all. In Matthew, when when the Magi saw the star, when they looked out and they saw the star pointing them to Jesus, they had joy. That's where the joy was. It wasn't looking in. It wasn't looking at their own joy. It was looking out to something pointing them to Jesus. In Luke, there was joy at the news, the good news of Jesus. Here in John, there is joy at hearing Jesus. It is this outward thing happening. It is this self-forgetfulness, getting out of yourself, looking out to the good news of Jesus. That is where joy comes from. So if you want joy, 
if you don't want to be miserable, if you want to give the impression to the world that to be a Christian is a happy thing, then behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. Let it sink in this morning. Let it sink in that you have been invited not to a funeral, but truly, truly to a party. You have not been invited to a funeral in Christianity or in your walk with God, whatever impression has maybe been given to you, whatever impression I have given to you at times. You have not been invited to a funeral. You have been invited to a party in Christianity. And know this, it's only just begun. It's only just begun. We've only begun to taste the the first fruits of joy in this life. And there is plenty of weeping and difficulty and pain that we still have to travel through, but we've tasted it. It's only just begun. Receive the Son. Receive the word of life this morning with faith and know that it's only getting better from here. As I said, I think two weeks ago, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. All right, amen.